as always, to sing with you the praises of our risen Savior. I want to ask you this morning to turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Read the opening portion of the chapter. So we'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 15. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Christ, who is our life, shall appear. Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing you've put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. For there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Linda reading in verse 17, again trusting the Lord to add His blessing to the public reading of His inspired Word. Let's do bow our heads and our hearts again together. Our gracious Father in heaven, Lord, we have lifted the phrase, what rush of hallelujahs. We've sung a hymn with a constant refrain, Hallelujah. Lord, we find throughout Your Word that this is the ascription of praise unto Yourself. It is even the Word itself. And when we consider Your person and what You have done for us in the Gospel of Your Son, What can we say but hallelujah? Praise be to the Lord. Well, grant us grace again, Lord, in these few moments that we share, that 
the power of your living word would be evident. That it would be quite evident to us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we sense something of the power of the world. Almost that concerted, united chorus of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it seems and indeed is powerful. Our enemy is described as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. But yet we, we read and we know, we have experienced, many of us, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Lord, help us today even to see the poverty of what the world has to offer. Lord, beyond even the sinfulness of things that are practiced in this evil world, the poverty, the emptiness of their pursuits. And by grace, minister to us such things as are those things above as we have read today. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We come this Lord's Day, as we say to you often throughout the year, each Lord's Day, to remember that Christ is risen from the dead. So important is the fact of Christ's resurrection that all of Christianity, all of our hope of eternal life is wrapped up within it. The Apostle Paul speaks in that glorious 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians and says that if Christ is not risen, then we are of all men most miserable. I think sometimes we can misinterpret that and think, well, we've believed a lie and we're missing out on all the fun. That's not what Paul was talking about there. But 1 Corinthians 15 is, at least it not yet, our message for today. But he says, but now is Christ risen. And you see those remarkable evidences of the risen Christ in the opening of that chapter. The early confession and creed indeed of the church, he reflects upon there. The apostolic testimony, the abundance of witnesses. But again, it's not just the historic reality that Paul holds and that we reflect upon. It's everything that was wrapped up within his resurrection. The resurrection is the culmination of the gospel, of the good news, the salvation of sinners. And when we come to understand that gospel in all its fullness, we realize then that there's no sum of Christ's teaching that we may embrace or obey that will procure for us eternal life. There's no example that he set that we might duplicate and arrive in heaven. His life, which was exemplary for us, and we are to pattern our lives after indeed, but his life was vicariously lived in order to, with certainty, obtain victory and glory for us. His life, you see, was just as vicarious as his death, and his death, as awful and unjust as it was from a human perspective, was from the perspective of heaven, the righteous payment of the debt of all those who believed in him. 
And in raising Him from the dead, and really if you look in the Scriptures, it's wonderful how all three persons of our triune God are involved in that resurrection. God raised Him from the dead. We read that affirmation constantly in the book of Acts. Romans chapter 1 opens with the attestation of the truth and reality of Christ's Messiahship by the Spirit raising Him from the dead. And Christ said in the days of His flesh, no man takes my life from me. I have power. I have the authority to lay it down. And I have the authority to take it up again. So in raising Christ from the dead, God gives witness to the success of every aspect of the work of Jesus. It's no wonder it was the focal point of apostolic teaching. It's no wonder that it is the focal point of New Testament worship as we gather on the first day of the week. It is no wonder that we find it permeating not just the closing verses of all the Gospel narratives, but as we've seen here in the heart of one of Paul's brief epistles, it permeates the remainder of the New Testament. And Paul went to Mars Hill in Athens to preach to those quite cultured and proud heathen. What does he do? He takes them to the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Jesus. Some mocked him. Some said, we'll hear him again. But that's what Paul preached. And so we come today to look at a portion in which the Apostle, in writing to us, draws our attention to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if you look at it, and what I want to do today is really take the first four verses of our chapter as our text, really the argument that Paul is presenting to us, the appeal that he's presenting to the Colossians, is based upon the Colossians' participation in the resurrection of Christ. And so if you will look with me at these appeals that Paul brings to us today, I thought it was interesting because I was a good way along in looking at the passage and in seeking to outline the, the main thoughts that were there. There are three points. I mean, preachers aren't always locked into three points, but three in these verses that I want to pull out. But it's interesting that as you look at the three things that we'll bring from these verses, that the three aspects, those key parts of our Christian experience are put on display. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. These are the pieces of our experience of the Gospel. And so look with me, if you will, in these. And the first thought that I would put before you today and this one that aligns with justification is this. That we find Paul here in opening his appeal giving a clear affirmation of our position. A clear affirmation of our position. We read, if ye then be risen with Christ. Now, we won't get into a full-blown language lesson here, but this is one of those occasions where the word if, even in English, uh, doesn't carry, as sometimes it does, uh, the, the attitude or the, the mindset of uncertainty. Now, this is one of those occasions where 
Really, the translation would almost be better, since. There's a certainty about it. It's not something that's unknown or uncertain, and it's just maybe possible. But Paul's saying, since you are. But because he's basing an appeal on that, he says, if you then be risen with Christ, then there are things that are, are going to flow from that. But again, those appeals are based, I say, on the certainty of our position. And think with me then of the many portions of Scripture that build upon, that instruct us from this issue of certainty. It's not an imagination. It's not just a homiletic device to try and connect this thought to that point of our systematic theology that we call justification. Because the resurrection of Christ is scripturally, it is directly connected with our justification. We read in Romans, we'll not turn it up, but chapter 4 and verse 25 of Christ who, he says, was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. And again in that text, those phrases have the idea of because of. Christ was delivered because of our offenses. Our offenses were counted as His. Our sins were laid upon Him. It was for that purpose that He was delivered. And when it comes to His resurrection, how, why is He raised from the dead? It's because we're justified. He has secured for us a right standing with God. His work has been successful. And here, again, the resurrection is the divine seal of approval upon His work. And that's where I, again, taken back with Christ's own words we've quoted already that He had the power, He had the authority to lay down His life. And they had the authority to take it up again. Think about that. We can think of Christ, and I think sadly sometimes He's depicted, as it were, as the victim. I know there are aspects of that, the sacrificial lamb, the victim. But that He was somehow powerless, that He was overcome by the circumstances, the Jews and the Romans overwhelmed Him. And even if we set those things aside and have some measure of right thought that He was delivered for our offenses. But think of this. He with authority laid down His life. What is death? Death is a result of sin. And so... Can we say this in a weird way? Even metaphysically, death can't happen if sin isn't present. God's created order. There's life. And death only enters that order by sin. So how can Jesus die by what authority can his life end? 
He had the authority to lay down his life. And he had that authority because the triune God reckoned our sins to belong to him. And so he could die justly, actually, because sin was laid on him. And so thus if he had the authority to lay down his life because he had the authority to assign our sins to himself, he had the authority, having purged our sins, having paid the penalty of our sins, to take up his life again and to bestow life upon us in the same way and with the same authority by which he bestowed death upon himself. And so it is no idle thing that the apostle calls upon the Colossians to think about, I say, this clear affirmation of our position. We are risen with Christ. Our union with Christ is clear throughout the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5, that passage that closes with that giant text of double imputation. But he says in verse 14 of the chapter, therefore if one died for all, then literally all died. There was a union with Christ and His people. We did not physically die there. But God reckons that death and that death under wrath. He reckons that death to be ours. And so in the same way that that death is reckoned to be ours, that we died when Christ died, His resurrection is reckoned to be ours. We rose when Christ rose. You go to Romans 6, and again, we'll not turn there, but that passage, sadly, I think sometimes we, we kind of get distracted as we read through there because Paul talks about therefore being buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ rose up from the dead, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Well, I grew up in a Baptist church, and our minister actually quoted that verse every time he immersed someone in baptism. I don't fault that at all. I don't speak against that at all. I mean, even as a paedo-baptist. But the point is, is that Paul there isn't talking about the ordinance, the water ordinance of Christian baptism. That's why we have to be careful how much of that passage we pull out and apply to the ordinance of baptism. But that's another topic. The reality there is we were baptized into Christ's death. It's one of the key aspects of baptism, even the the word family of baptism. It's that of union. We were united to Christ. We were buried with Him by this union into His death. And by that same union, we are raised from the dead with Him. Again, this is the, 
the clear affirmation of our position. We are risen with Christ. There are tangible future events in our lives and with these physical bodies that are going to happen because of that resurrection, but the certainty of that position, of everything that His resurrection was and entitles us to, it's already ours. There's no uncertainty about it. Since you're risen with Christ. And Paul's using really the same argument from Romans 6 here in Colossians. In chapter 2, jump back with me to verse 12 and read with me what Paul has immediately said. Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened, hath He made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross, having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Paul has said, he's argued with the Colossians, you were united to Christ in His death and you're united to Christ in His resurrection and the victory that He accomplished, the triumph that He has accomplished is yours. And so here, the appeal for practical godliness that's going to follow is as all the other appeals in the New Testament. The old as well, frankly. They're based upon the objective reality of our union as believers. Our union with Christ. We are a justified people. We have a title to glory. It is already ours. And so I say this opening phrase, actually that opening little word, since we're risen with Christ. It's a clear affirmation of our position. But come secondly to think with me of this. The constant activity of our pilgrimage. There's another writer that actually subsequent to my choosing that term in the list of P's here uses the language of the pilgrim in his unfolding of this chapter. But here, what is the constant activity of this pilgrim journey? We'll again plug in one of our systematic terms. Here's the doctrine, here's the practice of sanctification, of growth in grace, of change of life from what we were to what we now are. As Paul says elsewhere, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So the appeal here, we remember we are not ashamed to quote sources and align with godly men and teachers. If you've read anything or heard any messages from Sinclair Ferguson, you probably remember a frequent refrain of his that gospel imperatives, there's our little English grammar, 
commands. Do this, don't do that. The gospel imperatives are always based upon gospel indicatives. Just statements of truth. Statements of fact. And so Paul has based and bases his appeal, the imperatives that follow on those indicatives of being risen with Christ. And I think it's interesting as you come to look at this and even how it's unfolded in the epistles to always be careful in such things and note the general reference. But if I compare the church of my youth and I'm speaking of the church at large, even the evangelical Bible-believing churches. The church of my youth was seeking to live, if you will, in Romans 6 and 7. Those are the chapters that charge us to, well, to yield ourselves unto God and not yield ourselves to all this worldly stuff. You've you got to get right. You've got to yield. And even Romans 7 talks about the battle with the flesh. And we've got to put down the flesh. Well, those things are true. And I say there were good believers in this church of my youth. But the emphasis there often was, well, it was pushing the imperatives without understanding the indicatives. And so in a sense, again, just generally speaking, the church of those generations was trying to preach and live in Romans 6 and 7 without understanding Romans 5 and Romans 8. And there are the portions that speak of imputation, of the work of Christ, of our being but the mere recipients of His labors. Then we speak of the labors of ours in Romans 6 and 7. And so there's a sense in which today, some, and again I just speak very generally, just as there were good and godly people caught up in the dispensational and non-reformed theology of those generations. They're good people today in the resurgence of the doctrines of grace. But we can't live in Romans 5 and Romans 8 and ignore Romans 6 and 7 either. Well, it's Paul understanding that. Paul bringing the indicatives and then bringing the imperatives. And so he, he appeals to them based on the certainty of that position. But I say, we're pilgrims. We're strangers in a sin-cursed earth. There's some interesting observations if you are thoughtful as you read through these verses. Verse 1, since you're risen with Christ, and then skip to the opening phrase of verse 3, for you're dead. Well, which is it, Paul? Are we alive or are we dead? You've said we're both. Well, it's both. In what sense are we alive? In what sense are we dead? We're dead to the world. And alive unto God. He even speaks of our life being hid with Christ in God in this passage. You ever interact with the unsaved? And quite frankly, you just don't make sense to them? 
Well, it's because they're dead in trespasses and sins and you're not dead anymore. You're alive unto God. And your life is in a measure hid. They can't see through. They, they can't understand the change. They don't understand everything that's involved in regeneration and passing from death unto life. That somehow now the stuff that interests them and their flesh propels them into, you're walking away from that. You're going in a different direction that they scratch their heads and say, huh? You think that's fun? You had church stuff and all? I mean, wouldn't you? Our life is hid. So we're dead in one way and we're alive in another way. We're dead to the world and alive unto God. Think of it from this perspective. We're dead unto the curse and alive unto life. I've mentioned several times that chapter of John Owen's great treatise on the atonement. The death of death in the death of Christ. Well, you can flip that to the positives. The life of life in the resurrection of Christ. Because He has taken the curse upon Himself. And He has merited life, which was the reward of that covenant of which transgressing it was the curse. And He has claimed that for His people. And so here the appeal comes. And I say that the constant activity of our pilgrimage is this. And you just look at the, the words in verses 1 and 2. Seek. Seek those things which are above. Now we'll see some outlining of those things in a moment. But as you come to these terms, first we're told to seek, and then verse 2, we're told to set our affections. I don't think it is too great a stretch if you look at verse 1 and the charge, the command, the imperative to seek, that the focus there is upon activity. It's upon good works. It's upon doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing. But verse 2 expands upon this. It's not merely good works. It's good thoughts. Set your affection on things above. And that's where again we get into the deeper parts of sanctification. We say often that the works of the flesh and some outward activities that people are engaged in and all these common channels uh, that sinful life leads in. When a person comes to Christ, th there can be a great suddenness with regard to ceasing certain activities. There at times are great struggles as well. But these things can be cut off. But that's just the outward manifestation of the heart. There's that deeper work, not merely of seeking good things and thus shunning bad things, 
but of setting affections, of coming to understand the emptiness of those things, the corrupt nature of those things, and the fullness of the things of God, of the beauty and of the fulfilling nature of the things of God. And again, this is not merely with relation to things that are obvious transgressions of God's law. But it touches even the normal and necessary parts of life on the earth. I mean, that's the message of Ecclesiastes. It's the message of the Bible. One phrased it this way, and that's why I was smiling that somebody else brought the word pilgrim out of this passage and wasn't just looking for another P laying around somewhere. The pilgrim is not to despise the comforts he might meet with by the way. There are things of life. We can earn a living and buy a home and have a comfortable bed and a reliable car and all of these various pieces of life. We can enjoy a vacation and the wonders of the mountains of the sea. The pilgrim is not to despise the comforts he might meet with by the way, but he is not to tarry among them or leave them with regret. Things on earth are only subordinate and instrumental. Things above are supreme and final. Do we really get there in our thoughts in such a way that it impacts how we live and how we view life? I think so often it's easy for us to to do the stuff of life. You know, you're this age, you do that. You're this age, you do that. You're this age, you do that. Maybe you get to a certain age and you say, I should have done less of that and my knees wouldn't hurt as bad as it. I digress. But do we ever think about, I mean, because when we get there, this is life, you know. You play Little League when you're this age and then you get a job and then you buy a house and then you try and save for retirement. And, and religion just kind of a footnote to that. Or do we say, no, my life is hid with Christ and God. I'm risen with Him. The stuff of this cursed world, that's the footnote. Those are the necessary pieces of life. And I may not even despise the comforts and parts of life I meet with along the way, but I don't tarry among them or leave them with regret. I mean, seriously, at the coming of Christ and our gathering together unto Him, we say, oh, but Lord, that, you know, that nice little car, I, I want to leave. Seriously? No, things on earth are only subordinate and instrumental. Things above are supreme and final. I think it's interesting if you read from verse 5 down to verse 17 that we read together. 
Um, isn't this almost a, a, an exact parallel of Galatians 5 we've been looking at on the Lord's Day evenings with regard to the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit? We are risen with a risen Savior. And all this stuff of the flesh and the misery that it brings, the manifestation of death, severed, harsh relationships, malice, all of these things that accompany the works of the flesh. But we're rather, verse 12, to put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, to the fruit of the Spirit echoing in there, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfectness or completeness. This, I say, is the constant activity of our pilgrimage. Putting to death the old man. That's how we're dead striving after the things that belong to the new man. That's how we're alive. We come quickly and thirdly to think with me in our little portion here. He says, verse 3, For you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Well, the third little systematic theology word is justification, sanctification, glorification. As John phrases it, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we're in Him. We're united to Him. We were dead with Him. We are raised with Him. We'll see Him as He is. And so here is the calming assurance of our prospect. I've been using the word calm a lot in the last year or two. There's a reason. When times are troubled, wicked rulers rise up, bad circumstances happen, big earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, whatever. The prophecy preachers come out and even well-meaning Christians, we, we start, you know, what's going on? And I mean, we can look at the crumbling of our society and our culture, and yeah, it can impact us. But don't let it overwhelm us. Don't let it move us to keep or stop keeping the main thing the main thing. The gospel is the main thing. And if we get caught up in the frenzy of a world that's descending into chaos, and we pick some issue, and then suddenly anybody that agrees with us on that issue is our brother, that's not true. There are a lot of people celebrating Easter today that don't understand or believe the gospel. We've got to keep the main thing the main thing. So I've been hitting the word calm a lot. 
like I, why I wanted to preach in Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel were in some pretty devastating circumstances with regard to the condition of the church and even understanding what's going on. I mean, these wicked Gentiles are running the world. I thought we, I thought God said that they were calm because they understood why the world was upside down. Because God's people were disobedient. God's people weren't embracing and living out the gospel. So what are they going to do? Do something different than get back to the gospel? So we can be calm if we have gospel hearts in times of trouble and perplexity. But here, I say, is the calming assurance of our prospect. Our life is hid now. The world doesn't see it. The world doesn't understand it. Paul speaks in Galatians 6, an interesting text. That's a great one for preachers because the three-point outline is already there. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm quoting the wrong verse there. I better turn to it. The brain is not latched on. I may have gotten into it, but... God forbid, verse 14, that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom or by which the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. There's that death again. I say that's a great text for preachers because there's three crucifixions in the verse. The crucifixion of Christ. Well, there again is the union of Christ and His people. Well, it's by that cross that the world's crucified unto me. I see it for the death and the misery and the sin that it is. And so, I consider it dead. I'm going the other way. I've been redeemed and put on the other path. But then there's a third crucifixion. And I, unto the world. The world looks at me. You read Pilgrim's Progress. When... Christian went to the city of destruction and tried to tell his friends what he'd found and what he was reading in this book. What they do, say, that's great. Let's all go. No. He was a headline on the news. He's finally lost it. We saw it coming. We're crucified to the world. We're dead to the world. We don't make sense to the world. But that life that's hid with Christ in God is one day going to be manifested. When Christ, we read, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. And this is one of those occasions where we have to ask for gospel understanding. Because as a piece of that day in which the ungodly are put in their place, Peter talks about those that shamed us and mocked us or persecuted us because of our being a believer. He said because of our good works which they shall behold, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. There's going to be a display that the life that was hid from them 
that what we have in Christ is real. And I say it's one of those things we have to look at with a gospel heart because we so quickly get into that carnal, I told you so, thinking. Well, there's a sense of this reality and we can look to the lost and say, we told you. But it's not with a proud spirit, it's with a broken heart. But the great peace of that day is Christ's glorious appearing. That every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord. It's that gospel spirit we read of in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and think how great you are. No, that's not how the verse goes, is it? They might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's a gospel manifestation that we're the people of God. I love that phrase, Christ who is our life shall appear. But he says, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. You know, we think about the rapture and it brings up our charts and our debates. We have to wrestle with details and work things through. But the reality of that day, that event that comes under that title is the translation of living saints. The dead in Christ rise first. Then we which are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Paul says it in Corinthians, we shall not all sleep. We're not all going to go through physically. We will all be changed. We're not going to stay in these bodies that are touched and corrupted by the fall and by sin. And when we appear with all the saints of days gone by, with Him in glory, there's a visible manifestation. The Romans use the word we translate as triumph. We use it in a sense uh, just as denoting a victory. But in ancient Rome, a triumph was a parade that was based upon a victory. It was a public display of what had happened already. Well, in a sense, that gathering of the elect of all ages... I love the last line of that hymn we sang. Fill up the role of thine elect and take thy power and reign. But that gathering is a triumph. Wesley spoke of it in a Christmas hymn with regard to the angels in Bethlehem. Join the triumph of the skies. Well, the triumph of those days will not be well, even a multitude of the heavenly hosts. It'll be all the redeemed of all ages identified with Christ who is our life. And so whatever trial, whatever personal difficulties, whatever persecutions, whatever corporate setbacks, whatever advance of ungodliness, that God permits under His sovereign control, there's coming a day in which He will appear. He will be made known. 
And I say, here is that calming assurance because that prospect of being identified with him is ours. And there's no uncertainty about it. That day will come. No power of heaven, earth, or hell can stop that day from coming. Christ has purchased it. The moment He said it is finished and gave up the ghost, it was ours. And our risen Christ, again, His coming out of the grave, it's not just, though it is, it's not just a manifestation of His power and ability to do miracles. It's not just the evidence that He had the power to breathe life into that dead clay. What did we sing last week in that hymn of Gethsemane and following? There they laid His breathless clay. It's not just that He had the supernatural power to be raised from the dead. All that is true. But it's the, the testimony. It's the verification of what He came to do. Of putting death to death. Of redeeming a people who were dead in trespasses and sins and subjected to the curse of this cursed world and these broken and cursed bodies and these sinful and cursed hearts. That He has redeemed us from that. He has died the death all that deserved. And He has merited the life that could never be known by any fallen son of Adam except by grace in the person and work of this crucified and risen Jesus. He is risen indeed. Do we understand and rejoice in the fullness of the resurrection of Jesus? We are risen with Christ. Therefore, therefore, May God add His blessing to these thoughts from His Word. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we come asking that You will help us. Lord, by Your Spirit, instruct us. By Your living Word, help us. And give us rejoicing today that we serve a risen Savior. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.